In American society, money is a taboo topic. We're taught at a young age it's improper to talk about it, but we're also bombarded with messages about the power and importance of money in our everyday lives. And by not talking about it, we miss out on the skills and lessons we need to effectively understand and financially plan. That changes today. Welcome to Money Tales. Hosted by Sandy Brager and Cami Doder, Money Tales brings more than 35 years of combined professional experience in personal finance to demystify money and demonstrate what it's like to speak openly about personal financial matters. Join us each episode as they interview modern-day movers and shakers about how money decisions intertwine with their daily lives in order to give you better insight into productive financial conversations. Subscribe today and register for our blog, Fathom, at Asperient.com slash podcasts to increase your money mojo. And now, here's Cami and Sandy. Cami here. Today on Money Tales, we talk with Frank Britt. He shares with us what it was like to grow up in a paycheck-to-paycheck home, where financial anxiety was an underlying theme. At a young age, Frank uses thirst for knowledge to redefine the path of his life and reimagine who he was becoming. Frank is a consummate investor in self-development and self-discovery. This is Sandy. You should know that Frank is making the world better by solving problems around income inequality and income mobility. He is the chief executive officer of Penn Foster, a tech leader in providing educational programs that enable self-motivated independent learners to acquire core competencies in their chosen technical and professional field. As you'll hear in this episode, Frank is someone who brings his heart, his soul, and his brain to important conversations, including those about money. Welcome to Money Tales, Frank Britt. It's great to have you with us today. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So that our Money Tales listeners can get to know you, please provide an overview of your life, just a brief overview, and a couple pivotal moments that got you to this conversation today. Well, my origin story starts in uh, Metro New York in a community called Mount Vernon, which is right outside the Bronx, which of course, as you know, is the northernmost bureau of Manhattan. My family and I moved there from Canada when I was a young person and grew up in the 70s. I think life in the 70s was a little simpler than it is today. And it was a great place to grow up and and I think a great time to be growing up. We were pretty mainstream, middle-class family. We lived paycheck to paycheck and were largely detached from some of the larger forces at work, like the fact that inflation rates were at their peak in the 1970s. My dad was a sales rep and sold cosmetics. My mother was a really hardworking gal and sold Electrolux vacuum cleaners and was really very formative in our work ethic for all the kids. But I would say that financial anxiety was a persistent element of our upbringing. And while I certainly didn't know it as such at the time, I think there was a certain element of behavioral finance in our family and that it was more emotions and bias than it was facts and reasons. And I think that had, a, I think, an enduring influence on at least my thinking. And then I guess the last thing I would say is that the origin stories that we all have obviously shape who we become as adults, and maybe we can unpack some of those a little bit later. I think if you fast forward to the present, today I'm the CEO of a private equity-backed company and one that is exclusively focused on helping income mobility and income equality in the United States. I think we live in a time where income equality is the defining issue and is one that I'm very committed to helping address. So our organization is the largest upscaling platform in the United States. It's an organization called Penn Foster, and we help frontline workers build the credentials and the career paths they need. And we're a ESG-backed company, which 
for those of you who are not experts in ESG, that is the whole theme around sustainable investing. We're a purpose with a profit-based organization and we drive social outcomes at scale and bring a commercial lens to that. And we try to have as much impact as we can on people's futures as, as is possible. Mm, that's a great, efficient summary. There's so much in there that we're going to drill into. Going back to that middle-class youth living paycheck to paycheck, and you already talked about this financial anxiety underlying theme. Can you talk a little bit more about that? And whether were you talking about money? Was it just a feeling? What was going on at that time? Yeah, I think we lived in an environment that felt safe, but it was complex. I think we never lacked the essentials, but cash flow uncertainty felt very real and risk and fear was certainly part of it. I think as a child, the way that manifests itself is in terms of micro choices like clothing and food and entertainment. And it was very clear that in our family that economics were an omnipresent concern. The way I might think about it is while we had countless discussions on transactions like, should we buy this or should we not buy that? I think there was no cogent strategy on what is the role of money in our family and how do we think about the financial narrative? Maybe thought of as we were more of an income statement family than a balance sheet family in that we were managing cash flow to meet the monthly objectives and meet budget requirements, but we didn't have any sense of ownership and we didn't have any notion that there was a way to to build wealth over time through compounding and some of the more foundational catalytic tools that we all know make such a big difference over time. And so for multiple generations in our family, we were essentially renters. And I think you can't build prosperity in your life as a renter. It's just parenthetical to the ability of building wealth and taking advantage of tax codes that exist and alike. And so we were an income statement family, not a balance sheet family. And as a result of that, concepts around debt and risk were not topics we discussed much. I think to the extent that debt was part of the conversation, it was framed in the negative. It wasn't viewed as an opportunity to amplify your financial outcomes. It was viewed as something to avoid and to seek to stay out of at all costs because it could ruin you. And so we grew up in an environment where we didn't think about all the different levers of financial outcomes that you could use with a slightly more enlightened disposition. And I think at the end of the day, the implication for the adults that I now am It was a primal level of concern about economics and a need to break the pathology of being a renter and thinking more of a balance sheet person, which has taken, as you can imagine, many, many years. I do think that, by the way, that experience, while unique to me, is not unique to families in general. I think that the conversation and the behaviors around money are probably the most complicated or among the most complicated subject for any family. And I think it's a lot more than memorizing spreadsheets and learning the tools and techniques. It's really what is your relationship with financial matters and what is your identity relative to that? And how does that play out in your adult life and as a parent? And I know we'll talk more about that, but it was a unique alchemy that I think helped inform my future strategies, but it wasn't one that I would necessarily want to have replicated. Frank, I appreciate you sharing with us your reflections on your childhood. I wonder if you take yourself back to being a youth, can you remember thinking about money and projecting into your future? And if so, what were those thoughts and and what was your image for yourself in the future as you were growing up? Well, I don't think that we really had an image for the future. I think it was horizon and was not really part of the story. It was designed to We assumed positive outcomes and a fulsome life, but there wasn't an arc to the aspiration. There was some general notion that you should probably go to college would be a good idea. 
because that just seemed like the right thing to do. But career planning and navigation and trade-offs and choices, that really, really wasn't part of the, the conversation. And I think that that led to a different type of anxiety, which is to say, well, what am I supposed to do? And how am I supposed to change the trajectory of my life? And what are the steps I need to take? And we can talk a little bit about what those steps were over time. But I think it really wasn't a primary part of the conversation. It was just as long as we could keep going month to month, quarter to quarter, then we were doing fine. And the rest of the narrative would logically play out. So therefore, there was an assumption. I often make the distinction between biography and identity, which is we are often born into a biography that we are welcome to follow, but that's not necessarily our identity. And sometimes this term is framed in the negative, but we have a pathology in our families that are very formative and you can embrace those. And there's not necessarily something wrong with that, but there's also an opportunity to reframe your biography. And I think the question that I grappled with for a long time, which we could talk about is how do you go about reframing that? And what should that reframing be in search of what and why? And that was perhaps the segue to some of the bigger decisions I had to make along the way. But in the context of the family itself, the long arc of the future was not one that we discussed on a regular basis. Yeah, we'd love to hear about how Frank became woke. <laughs> well, I guess there's two, I mean, two dozen, 200, 2,000 micro examples. I think it was Obama's book that said, a child is shaped by 10,000 experiences, not one. And so I think that maybe two that are particularly formative, one as a child and one as an adult that maybe we're sharing. I mean, when I grew up, I was a B student. And at somewhere along the line, late high school, the fog started to lift. And I could begin to see a future path forward. And I began to see the connection between purposeful self-reflection and self-development and perhaps a change in the trajectory of the future. And so to the extent that self-discipline is a form of freedom, which it is, I started to embrace the idea of compounding habits, particularly related to learning. And so the light bulb got brighter and brighter. And it said, you can use a variety of techniques to do self-discovery, whether it be journaling, reading, publishing, mentors all of which will be a catalyst for a different future. And so the practical insight was it became clear to me that what you think about most is what you typically become. And then the loudest and most influential voice in your life is the one in your head. And so interestingly, you can actually change your future just by the act of thinking about that. In the uh, Olympics, they talk about this concept of tomorrow time where they put the time that the Olympians trying to hit next to their bed and every night before they go to bed, they look at that time. And there is an empirical basis to the idea that over time they reshape their brains and they adapt to that reality that they are now pursuing. And I think I did that in a very purposeful way. And there are a variety of catalysts for doing that. But this notion of the compounding value of habits and self-discovery became probably the single most important thing that shifted the narrative. As an adult, as I alluded to earlier, many, many years later, I had had a path sort of a first mountain journey, if you will, and became a CEO, then joined a private equity firm in Boston, which was a huge achievement. And I thought if I was a capital provider across the private equity industry, rather than a general manager, that that would be kind of the natural summation of a career. It made perfect sense. I'd have portfolio, better returns, less downside concerns and the like. But what I realized over time was that that wasn't the second mountain I needed to climb. And I think we all grapple at some point in our story of what is the sequel to the plan once you actually do the plan that you set? And I really struggled for a while as to well, what is the right next step? Should I remain an active part of the private equity industry, which 
by the way, is a credibly significant achievement from where I started? Or might there be a better way to take the next 10 years or 15 years and amplify my impact in a different way? And that's why I ended up at Penn Foster, because I felt like that was an organization where I could use my commercial acumen to drive social impact. And I would be rewarded by my commercial acumen because I could actually have more purpose and more purpose would drive more profit. And this flywheel would start to kick in. And and today, we're one of the largest providers in the United States of this upskilling capability, which is really an acute need at a time in our country. There's 150 million adults who work. 80 million of them are not four-year college degree people. And the workforce system in this country is not engineered for the 21st century. And so we viewed Penn Foster as a, an example of a platform that can make a difference. And so for me, the second mountain, as David Brooks would call it, was go back to being a CEO and drive purpose and profit and then hopefully inspire other people to do the same thing because the needs are great and, and there's no single organization that can make a sufficient impact. But at scale, we can begin to change the arc of tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of families, not just my own story. You use the example or flywheel, the term flywheel, and it's to me very powerful. And you also talked about this Olympic example where people put their goals in a paraphrase, what's your, what's your goal yet your tomorrow time? What's your goal that you're trying to achieve? Can you give an example of what was your, what was on your bedside and what was your number? What were your things that you were changing? And then what did you do to create that change? People are motivated by a variety of things. Sometimes it's by competition. Sometimes it's by fear. Sometimes it's self-motivation. And I wanted to get to a place where I was motivated by self primarily, because I think that's the healthiest way to operate psychologically. And so I was really purposeful about trying to put myself in a position where I had enough confidence and momentum in my own habits that they were sustainable. I, I say that motivation runs out, but habits don't. That can be, by the way, both good and bad. So if assuming I'm talking about positive habits. And so I think my master plan was to build enough scaffolding around the habits in my life that when I fell off the wagon on a, any random day, like we all do, that there was enough infrastructure, enough mindset calibration and enough understanding of the power of doing it the right way that I would just keep coming back to this habit building notion. And so I decided that learning was really going to be the, the way I would change everything. And I think that that's partially why I'm in the enterprise that I'm in today is I know that education can help people reimagine who they are. And I think we all talk about the power of example. I think a single individual who changes their own life then correspondingly changes their family and if they change their family, they have a much greater chance of changing their community. And so I think my primary emphasis, besides being a hopefully a competent husband and a competent father, was to continue to invest in self-development and self-discovery. And if I continue to do that, I didn't actually know where I would end up. But one of the folks that early in my life that influenced me said that if you are preoccupied with putting yourself in boundary conditions on a regular basis you will essentially decorrelate yourself from everyone else, which was his way of saying, you will become more and more unlike everybody else, and therefore you will be more valuable because you'll be more different. And so rather than follow the chosen path, I felt like if I could become more different by working across industries and across roles and in large companies and in startups and mid-sized companies, the sort of sum total of all that non-linear work would actually result in a better overall finished product. And that diversity and heterogeneity of experiences would actually be the advantage rather than the problem because most other people stay in that industry and stay in that industry and stay in that industry. And while it has created some risk, I think in the long run, it's driven an asymmetry of perspectives that you can't get if you just stay within your proverbial swim lane. 
and it's worked out really well. So I'm grateful for the advice that I got and I've tried to live by those values. Frank, as you were moving your way across the pool and back and forth, what role does money have in the decisions you were making and how you were thinking about the next step and the next way to learn more and develop more? Yeah. You know, I think that there are three questions that my wife and I, Noreen, who's obviously been the MVP of any of the successes that I've made had, we always framed it in the context. There were three questions we had to grapple with on a regular basis. One was, how will we manage our money? The second is, what is our relationship with money? And then the third one was, how will we go about making money? And so on the first bucket, how we manage our money, that's largely about techniques. And I say this with humility, but anybody, anybody could learn the basics of how to manage money because it's vocational. Now, what you need to learn may be different if you're a 22-year-old learning about credit cards and budgeting as opposed to a parent with 529 programs and 401k, and maybe if you've achieved some level of wealth worrying about things like estate planning. But there is a proven curriculum at every stage of your life. And so how to manage money isn't really that difficult a problem. It's, there's infinite amount of resources, and if you're earnest about it, you can achieve adequate mastery. I think the relationship with money, though, is arguably the hardest part. And the psychology you have regarding money, which is why you have money, what is the purpose of money in your life, how do you prioritize, what do you care about in your life, and what are your first principles relative to spending, savings, and risk, is a very, very complicated problem and is born with a lot of history in many cases where it reflects a deep-seated influence of maybe your identity and even your parents' identity and other influences your life. And in many cases, you have to do that with a spouse who has his or her own version of that narrative that has to be merged. And so we have spent the most time on the psychology of money question, even more so than how you manage your money, because it turns out what's so unique about money management, and you folks are experts compared to me, but you couldn't be a cardiologist or a top tier lawyer had you not gone to medical school or a lawyer. But you can be a very wealthy person and not have gotten an MBA from Wharton. In fact, many of the most successful people I know just had followed the basics of how to manage money, how to save, how to compound, and how to just run a portfolio and some very foundational blocking tackling. And so while it might be better if you'd worked at Goldman Sachs or JP Morgan, you don't have to have worked in those places to still have had a very successful financial life if you follow the right techniques. So techniques aren't the problem. It's your relationship with money and the psychology you have with money are the key factors. And then the last component, which will answer your question explicitly, was the third question is how do you make money? So one is how you manage. The other is what's your relationship. The third is how you make. And this is probably the most contrarian thing that I learned early, which was my mentor said, don't try to make money. That is a very, not only is it not the right emphasis from a values perspective, it's not even the right way to maximize wealth. And I said, well, I'm perplexed by that because it seems pretty straightforward. Pursue the path that would drive the most return. And what they said is what you really should focus on is trust building. You should be known as the person that has built the greatest pool of trust. And the balance sheet of trust is what will compound your wealth opportunities. And if you work in the mailroom, you should be the best person and people should trust you as a good mailroom person. And if you're CEO and you've raised hundreds of millions of dollars, and have a leveraged organization, and you're the steward of capital for leading limited partners in private equity firms, that's the same thing. It's just a different level of trust. And so I've always focused on trust as the primary emphasis. And if you earn more trust, you earn more opportunities. And if you earn more opportunities, 
you end up generally doing better financially. And so on the third theme of how to make money, we never really focused on goal setting for financials. We focus on goal setting for building trust. And if you do that couple with putting yourself in boundary conditions, it turns out you end up in very challenging situations that have a different symmetry in terms of return opportunities. And if you execute, hence build more trust, that becomes the virtuous circle. And so we've always thought of those three questions, how you manage, easy, how you relate to it, very complicated, and then what to focus on in making money, trust before return. And if you do that, you'll end up in a good place. I love this. Frank, tell us how you came up with those three questions, you and Noreen. And when did you start these conversations, importantly? We all live a life of a little bit of revisionist history, as we know. I'd like to answer the question that very early in our career and very early in our marriage, which we got married on relatively earlier side of life at 25, we realized that while we were not experts in money, that money was going to make a difference in some way, shape, or form, and that we needed to start scaling the learning curve. I think we started, as most people do, with trying to attain technique understanding, like what is a budget, and what do you mean, why would I do a Roth IRA to get compounding over a lifetime? We just studied the techniques, but I think we came to realize over time that technique mastery was not going to be the thing that would drive outsized returns, although certainly good hygiene is important. But the more important thing was what was our relationship going to be in regards to money and how was it going to affect the choices we made. I remember there was a New York Times, not article, it was an advertisement that had a stack bar chart that you folks would appreciate. It had return on investment and return on experiences. And it said, when it's said and done, make sure that this stack bar chart is five times higher than the other one, which is not to say you shouldn't have good hygiene relative to money management, but that you should not be confused about which of those two actually make a bigger difference. And so we talk about in our family, memory dividends, which is memory dividends are essentially the currency of how are you accumulating experiences given the fact you have some access to resources. And it's a corollary to focus on trust, not income, but it has to do with what are the first principles and how you prioritize your life. And you probably end up with a little less money when it's all said and done, but it will hardly make a difference. In fact, it won't make a difference at all. It's beautiful. It really is. You mentioned children. These are three great questions and things to talk about. Do you bring this to the dinner table with your kids? Yeah, the story that I may be worth telling about the kids, I have younger kids who have now become young adults. And you know, I was thinking a lot about this question in advance of this discussion of what was our approach to our children relative to money. We didn't have a lot of money. I think that we all come to all these conversations with what I call a history bias, which is we seem to confuse the fact that our life experience is very narrow and the world is much bigger, but we bring a far disproportionate amount of influence of our past to the present, which isn't really rational, but it's kind of the way we are. And so I'm sure the story is a similar one to many families where we started to get some level of success financially, certainly more than we grew up with. And we started to encounter this issue of authenticity with our children, even at a very young age, say just seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, which was they were asking questions like, are we rich? And we we're like, absolutely not. That is a ridiculous question. And we're like, well, how can we get to go in spring break? Not everybody gets to go in spring break. We must be rich. And so we realized the children's concept of money is, is very, as I said earlier, like it's about your clothes. It's about maybe your school. It's about your car. It's not a balance sheet lens. It's just an aesthetic of like, what are the choices we make and how we discuss it? So the dilemma was what to do about that because we want to have like all people, highly motivated children who 
believe in the power of hard work and scarcity is a virtue, not a curse. And how do you meld those in a way that's authentic? So what we did is we decided it was important to find a charity that all of the family could feel connected to. And we had a family meeting, wasn't much of a meeting because the kids were younger at the time, but the conversation was, what is one cause that we could support that everyone in the family could be a part of? I mean, the six-year-old, the nine-year-old, and the 11 and 12-year-old, and the parents. And our answer was that the thing that defines a society's virtue is how they treat children. And that, unfortunately, homelessness in the United States for children is just extraordinarily high. In Massachusetts, there's about 1.5 million children in Massachusetts, and 10% of them live in poverty. And that number is understated because in some of the more acute communities, it could be two to three times that. And so what we said is, let's support homeless children, and let's make that the family cause. We connected with the Lazarus House, which was in the community nearby where we lived, and we committed over the course of eight years to basically mobilize our family in support of raising money for Lazarus House. And there was, a, among other things, a hike for hope, as they called it, to build this homeless transitional housing journey. And basically, each one of the children was responsible sequentially, as they got older, for raising money and then leading a team of people to raise money. And it became basically a stewardship model where the first generation child led the effort. He raised money. He had 100 of his colleagues and friends from school be part of that. He presented to kind of get adults to, and then when he did his journey for three or four years, then the next kid, which was my daughter, did the same thing. And she had team oxygen, as they called it, because oxygen is the life of life and so is housing. And then the third child came, and when he was at the appropriate age, he took over. And so over the course of 10 years, the family basically made that the cause. And the reason that story is important, and it's not that unique, I know many, many families are very generous, it was really more to say, the reason we have the money is in service of other people. And so the axiom of from everyone who has been given much, much is demanded, but from the ones who've been entrusted with much, much more is expected. We embrace that idea. And so we made it less about consumption and more about we have some resources and services of other people. Let's mobilize against that principle. And you'll have to interview the kids someday. They're now young adults. But I think, I think they got the point, which was we were modeling the values, not modeling the consumption. And we still had consumption, but it was a more balanced scorecard. And I think that was a important thing to do. At least it made sense for us and was our way to teach lessons in a practical way and talk about money, by the way, in a very real sense of what is the economics of building a transitional housing? And what does it mean to go raise $5 from each one of your neighbors? And, and how do you keep track of that? So there was a certain financial literacy element that was sort of hidden inside of the secret sauce and the ability to advocate for other people who don't have a voice, that may be the most important thing. So great. I love that you guys were modeling your values, what was most important to you, teaching lessons in the process. I'm wondering now that the kids are young adults, are you guys still talking about money together? And if so, how does that happen? And what are you guys talking about? Yeah, I mean, we're in a different stage financially and there are now young adults, two of them are out of college, third is in college. I think what we've tried to do is to make, I mean, let's be honest, we haven't achieved any level of mastery. We're just figuring it out like everybody else. We just basically view it as an open curriculum. And so, for example, today there was a decision of, should we make an extra payment on our mortgage? So we go sit down with our 19-year-old and say, well, does it make sense to pay down the mortgage at the current cost of capital? 
will increase our principal subsequently as a result in every subsequent payment, but maybe it's a better time to put that money into an alternative asset class. And so it's just a micro example of should you make an extra payment or should you pay more than your standard? There are lots of opportunities in families' day-to-day life to teach questions like that. And there's not a single curriculum per se, but it's all part of the conversation. We had a discussion last night about, I think the number, you guys are experts, that if you looked at the NASDAQ and Russell 3000 in the last 20 years, 10% of the companies represented 90% of the return. And so unless you're prescient and you can figure out what they are in advance, you'd probably be wise to do a balanced index fund. This way you've picked every winner by definition, even if you don't know who they are in advance. And just having conversations like that over the dinner conversation way is, I think it adds up. And again, we don't have the answers to all these questions, but I think just making it a comfortable topic to discuss is the way to elevate everyone's best self. I think the curriculum idea is wonderful. And I love that you had just this conversation last night. I'm curious, what's a favorite question or two you've received from your kids when you post something that's could be relatively complex? Should we pay down the principal? What's a favorite question? I think the question that the kids are starting to ask, which I think says a lot about them and not as much about me, is they're asking the question is, what is enough and why is it enough? And I think it's a question that for those of us who are a little bit more alpha and we're driving to set the world record on whatever the topic is that we think is important, which may not actually be as important as we think, I think it's a fair question to ask, what is enough and why is it enough? And how do you think about that in a balanced way? What is the either hidden or actual scorecard you're using to measure the sum total of your effects on the world? And financial measures are a proxy for success. But as we all know, luck also plays a very important role. And that's why one of the questions I think was asked of me recently is, who do you admire relative to their habits? Who have you learned from as it relates to money management? And I'd say I've learned from lots of people, not a single person, but I've also been pragmatic about it because I realized that some people have a lot of capital because they literally got lucky. And I don't think everyone who has a lot of money got lucky. In fact, I know that's not true. But you have to be a little cautious, A, that outcomes sometimes are random. And the other thing is that many of the people who have the most capital realize that the role of capital is to have a better life experience. It's not as a social proof. And I think I know in my case in particular, early in my life, I think I over-indexed on the social proof aspects of building some level of financial capability. I regret that. I think that was not the proudest moments. And I think I've learned from other people and peers, some of the most successful people that I know and that I admire, they're far more preoccupied with being respected and being thought of as generous than they are whether or not they have the most capital, even though they probably do have the most capital. And so I think my own self-identity has evolved to I don't think humility would be the right word, but certainly trending towards trying to be much more modest in my outcomes and much more preoccupied with things that matter because you have a lot more respect for being generous than you do for driving a Ferrari. Well said. Frank, as you reflect back on the money conversations of your life, and it's so exciting to hear that you've had so many in different contexts, has a money topic come up where you just felt really uncomfortable touching it, exploring it, thinking about it? Well, I think one set context that comes up often is how are you supposed to help people as they go through their journeys? And that could be a young person who's literally just trying to figure out, 
or an adult that for a variety of reasons, things haven't gone as they might have expected. And I think part of the question as you get a little bit older is, what is your role relative to elevating others? And so I spend more time thinking about, not necessarily in the limited context of financial support, but in the holistic sense of what is the best way to help people? And obviously, there's a set of organizations in our country that are in desperate need of resources. And if you have the wherewithal to do that, you should essentially give them some of your capital to allow them to achieve their missions. But a lot of the support is more nuanced. You have a person who wants to start a business, but doesn't have the comfort that if it doesn't go their way, it will put them in financial harm's way. So I guess the way I would say it is I try to think about who I can help, but not in a way that's about pity. And it's an affirmative posture. It's in light of your great potential and in light of the choices you're willing to make and the sacrifices you're willing to endure. How can I help best elevate that? It might just be advice. I find that interestingly, it's oftentimes more of a crisis of confidence than competence that holds people back in their bigger choices in life. And so I'm trying to be more mindful of helping more people in terms of elevating their potential and essentially eradicating their self-limiting beliefs and their imposter syndromes and all these other things that we all deal with as humans. And so as it relates to money, sometimes it includes the role of should I provide capital or how can I help enable you to get capital? That's a tough one to walk because I feel comfortable if you empower me to manage money on your behalf as I do as a CEO and have raised hundreds of millions of dollars, I feel comfortable that that stewardship is one that I can own and manage and feel accountable for. And I think it's a very high obligation and I take it very seriously. When you ask someone else to provide capital to a third party and it's not you, you're taking on this double-sided risk of you're essentially giving your credence to a person who you want to support and you're asking someone else to go on that journey with you. I understand that's the way the world works. I'm particularly focused on what is my direct role in helping people elevate their capabilities and their opportunities. And I realize that having access to resources is one of the roles I play, but it's not necessarily always the most important one, but it is one that I have to prepare to inject into a relationship if it's in service of helping that person achieve their higher goals. It sounds like all that trust that you were talking about earlier in the conversation comes into play in those situations as well. Yes. It's also why the habits are so important because habits are, the, are if you fast forward the habits, you can almost figure out where everyone's going to end up. I mean, within reason. And I think I always focus on the underlying habits that people have and how have they inculcated that into their life choices. And no one's perfect and we all have imperfect days. But I think over the long run, the habits are what compounds outcomes in the same way that, as you folks know more than I, you know, consistent investing and compounding of investment is the single greatest catalyst for wealth creation. It is exactly the same narrative for habits. In fact, that arguably is a habit, right? Continuing to dollar cost average into a balanced portfolio. And I think if you view yourself as the asset, you have to continue to dollar cost average in. And I think people who are purposeful about that, I'll underwrite that every day of the year because I may not know where they're going to end up, but I know which way they're headed. Frank, you've got a lot of wisdom. What do you wish you knew back, maybe coming out of college, that you know today and applied that wisdom? from that day forward? I think two things. One would be that I, for very, I think, valid reasons, had a lot of questions about what would be the ultimate trajectory. I didn't have a lot of reference points. I think that 
this is a, a Jeff Bezos line, but he argues in one of his annual letters that uh, standards are what defines an organization and that the good news is standards are contagious and they're teachable and they can be teachable literally or through example. And I think where I really struggled in the formative stages of let's call it early adulthood is I didn't have many examples. So I didn't really know what I was supposed to do or what I was supposed to try to be. And I think that what I grappled with was, am I supposed to follow a map or am I supposed to be a cartographer that creates my own map? And I think the answer was I, I was supposed to build my own map. And so that's why I became so preoccupied with this question of learning, because I was trying to figure out what is the map? The obsession was about learning. Learning was in search of trying to figure out what that map was. One of the questions that often gets asked is, you know, what book had an outsized influence on you? And as you know better than I do, you know, Andrew Carnegie, the tycoon of the late 1800s, he wrote The Gospel of Wealth, which was all about the role of philanthropy in society and how to essentially democratize the country and deal with income inequality through philanthropy. But the more important book that he never gets credit for was actually the first self-help book in the United States. And he funded this fellow to go interview successful people. Everyone from Rockefeller and J.P. Morgan to ordinary business people had gone on to some success. And the question he asked was, what are the key things that makes a person successful in their life? So he studied this question and he asked this fellow, Napoleon Hill, to write a book. And the book, which has kind of a gauche title by 21st century standards, which was called Think and Grow Rich. Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill in 1937 is one of the top selling books in the history of the United States. And it was the first self-help book. And what it argued was what mattered was your commitment to self-improvement. That was going to be the thing that would drive asymmetrical returns and that anybody had access to that because it was behavioral. It was behavioral. It wasn't a social status. It wasn't even vocational. It was just a series of habits that you compound over time. In my early 20s, when I was in search of what that map was, I probably listened to that book or read that book a hundred times, a hundred times, because what it captured for me was not the words of the 1930s and 40s, but just this idea that you could essentially take control and own your future if you made a certain set of choices. And the book didn't lay out the how-to, it was more of the what are the first principles you should live by in helping to shape that arc and bend that arc in a way that was very much in your control. And I think over time, to answer your question of what would I tell myself, is that I didn't fully appreciate that I would gain that confidence over time, which came and was born by self-motivation and self-understanding as it was by any of the externalities that we're all influenced by. I'm so glad you shared that story and brought up that book. My father gave me a copy when I was 11. Read this, Sandy, read this. <laughs> like, no way, Dad, I'm not going to read this. And I think I finally got around to it in, in high school out of guilt. <laughs> but it was very interesting, which I think is also a story that might resonate with some of what you've said, which is just when we're younger, we think we know so much more. And then as we experience life, we realize there's just so much more to learn and we, we really don't know as much as we thought. Frank, I'm curious, if you had all the money in the world, if you were the richest person in the world, what would you do with that money? My kids have this game they play with my wife, which is if they won the biggest lottery in the world, what would they do with the money? For whatever reason, I'm generally not invited to that conversation. So that may not be a positive foreshadowing. I think that 
the philanthropists of the 21st century, the, the famous ones that we all know, I think they are doing a lot of the right things. I think they are trying to figure out how they can have asymmetrical influence on issues of social importance and in whatever way drive acceleration, generally in service of humankind, in some cases very aspirationally like space travel, in other cases very practical issues of disease in Africa and the like. So I guess I would like to say, I haven't given that a lot of reflection, but I think it would I feel like today I have a platform for advocacy for people who don't have a sufficient voice. And I would imagine I would just mimic that at a larger scale with additional resources. And I would find other entrepreneurs who are doing the same thing. I'm a believer that purpose matters, but I'm also a market-based person. And I think the extent that entrepreneurs, particularly those who have been wildly successful financially in this example, can be a catalyst for other entrepreneurs. I think market-based solutions are generally the ones that work best and is what innovation is really founded on. And so I think I would help social causes and I would just be ever more mindful of who it is I could help in whatever way that made sense. And I think it would be a remarkable privilege. I have a few folks that I've encountered along the way, not many to be clear, but who are very high profile people who've been wildly successful in business. And I have asked them that question, how do you frame what you're here to do now that you've been so wildly successful? starting some of the most successful companies in the United States or being very successful investors. And it's an interesting question. No one really has a pithy answer, but I think everyone's in search of this question of what is the legacy you want to leave and in service of who and beyond your family, which of course is of most importance. I think we're biologically engineered to want to help the tribe be better. And I think that that manifests itself in lots of ways, but I think that's the way humans have been for 40,000 years since they stood upright. And my sense is that I would tap into that primal orientation in a 21st century kind of way. That's great. Thank you for sharing that. I want to ask on like the opposite side of that question, what's your favorite possession? <laughs> I don't actually buy many things. I don't really own many things. To the extent that I do, it's in service of my family. I think the thing that gives me a peculiar level of intrinsic joy are books. And I think that if you built me a new house and you asked my family what's his number one priority, it would be a bigger space for books. And I think books to me are emblematic of so many things and I am a fairly relentless reader. Your answer is very consistent to who you are in this commitment to lifelong learning. Yeah, that's a fair story. I hadn't thought about that question, but I think that's right. Yes. Tell us one piece of money wisdom that you'd like to share with our listeners that hasn't come up yet in our conversation. Well, I think we talked a little bit earlier about this question of what is the purpose of having the money? And I think that in the formative stages of life, you obviously have to worry about the basics because without the basics, all bets are off, so to speak. And so beyond that, as I've achieved some level of success financially, and certainly have plenty of work ahead, I think beyond intelligent financial choices, which is, I think, available to anyone, I think you have to really reflect on what is the purpose of the money in your life. And I think for us, it's about experiences, as I mentioned. And so this idea of what is the return in your experiences, and what is the way that you will get fulfillment and you heard me say earlier, what is the memory dividend points you're accumulating? I think that's above all other things that I would encourage people. And then I think that's from a position of what I'd call the positive. 
I think from the framing of the negative or the defense, and I say this with a high level of personal experience, I know that I did not consistently distinguish myself earlier in life in terms of I was overly indexed on the role of money as a social proof, and I didn't do anything that would be considered illegal, but I certainly wasn't my best self, and I was using the some level of financial success that I had started early in life to accumulate as a proxy for other achievement, and it was misguided. And the people that I really respect are so generous and so understated, and I think that my advice would be don't use money as a social proof. Don't let it be about your identity. View it as an agent for safety in your family. View it as an opportunity for experiences. View it through the lens of helping others and view it as a way that you can have a very enriched life. But frame it in the context of the positive with abundance orientation rather than scarcity. Because when I've done the opposite, it hasn't gone well. I think if you think about the Aesop fable of, is it better to be the ant or the grasshopper? I think the answer is both. So try to be both. What is going to be your next money conversation? And who's it going to be with? Well, certainly going to encourage them to listen to your podcast. I think that your service to others of making it a productive, safe, accretive, yet vulnerable environment to talk about the complexities of money from various different life stages and life angles is very helpful. That's number one. And number two, I would say, if you go back to the three questions I asked of how do you manage your money, how do you make money, and what is your relationship with money, what I've been trying to do in recent times is to really, hopefully constructive way, make the psychology of money question one that's safe to talk about and unpack because it's very complicated. It does not lend itself to pithy bullets like dollar cost average your way into this and have a diverse portfolio. It's not programmatic. It's emotional. It's human. It's behavioral. It's identity. It's history. It's a whole bunch of things. It's a very complex alchemy that's, as I said to my wife recently, everyone's financial life is a snowflake. And so you can't presume what it is. But that's not to say, that's not to say there aren't ways that you can navigate it in a semi-consistent way. And I think as is true with any earnest relationship, it starts with finding that safe way to talk about something that allows for vulnerability, but in a strength-based format. And I think I'm trying to learn how to have better dexterity around that topic so I can help other people then in my own way, encourage that conversation around the psychology to complement the good techniques and to complement the trust-building emphasis as it relates to generating income itself. Frank, what a great conversation. Thank you so much for talking about money with us. You have wonderful insights and you've done a great job modeling what it's like to think out loud and share and talk about money. It's been a pleasure. It's a privilege to spend time with you guys and thanks for giving me that opportunity. Thank you, Frank. Sandy, that was a fantastic conversation we just had with Frank. He really had so much wisdom and I appreciated him sharing it a lot with us. I enjoyed that too, Cami. It was almost like being at the sink and turning on the faucet. You just start talking to Frank and the wisdom just keeps pouring out. I loved that. And it was clear that he has thought a lot about money during his life and in preparation for our conversation. And I really appreciate that he took this conversation so seriously and shared his experience and his thoughts and his takeaways with us. 
What was one of your favorite Frank pieces of wisdom? What I appreciated the most was him boiling down some of his thoughts into key phrases and concepts that I think are pretty easy to remember. He talked about the memory dividend. If we spend money to have this experience together, I'm going to always be able to recall that experience. I'll have a memory about it. And that experience and the money I spent to enjoy it is going to keep paying dividends to me in the future. I've been thinking a lot about something along these lines, and it's about the accidental spending that can happen. If you're not intentional, money can be spent and can be spent quickly, and you don't even know what you're spending it on. And if you had been more intentional and thinking about a money dividend, you might've made the decision, why am I spending it there? And I appreciated Frank talking about how effectively every dollar counts. So you're making choices and that's sort of what it boils down to. That's right. And that's a nice segue into the second phrase that Frank mentioned that I really liked, which was, don't use money as social proof. What's that mean to you? Tell me what that means to you. To me, it means really be intentional about your money. Spend it on the things that matter to you. Don't spend it on things that you hope will impress other people. Right. The other people won't even notice for the most part. For the most part. Yeah. I mean, it's just kind of like, don't keep up with the Joneses. Keep up with yourself. Be true to yourself. That's how I thought about it. Did you have a different? No, I thought the same thing. And I thought it's also being okay with those purchases that someone else might deem them as frivolous. But for you, it's right. And you're doing it for you and for what you want. I do think on that last point, it's important to always have some fun money available. Being disciplined about your money, being aware and intentional about how you're saving and spending is so, so important. But I do think everyone should have just a pile of fun money to just have a great time with and hopefully have a great time with other people too. Yeah, I have noticed a number of our guests talking about that and not apologizing for it. It's just, that's why we work hard and it's for fun when you can have fun. It's also for other things, giving back, investing, all the important things with money. I agree. No guilt on the fun money. The third phrase Frank mentioned that was really cool and resonated with me was motivation wears out, habits don't. That one really struck me. And I think about habits. Habits are hard to break, hard to form. And so I think what he's talking about is you commit to the habits, you create the habits because we all start some new goal, New Year's resolution. And you think about fitness, I'm just that seems to be a common one. And so you're motivated, but you don't have the habit yet. And so translating that to money, just even talking about it, having the habit, which we'll, we should talk about Frank and Noreen's habit around talking about money, but they're motivated, but until they build the habit, it's really hard to make it part of your everyday life. That's right. Going back to the work that we do, this is something that we talk with clients about a lot because sometimes life changes and your orientation to money has to change. Uh, That might mean spending a lot less. It might be spending more because you know you've just been a little too vigilant we always focus on the purpose we try to find that heart connection to the purpose what is the value around that purpose what's the connection and when those pieces are in place i think that's when it's easier to start thinking about okay well, how do we turn this into a habit 
What can we do? What sort of policies can we put in place and practice so that over time we can do this activity without even thinking about it? It becomes automatic and the automatic habit is reflecting our true intention, values, and purpose. I like that. So almost to get to the habit, you have to understand the purpose. I think so. And I bet Frank would agree because he is a purpose-driven person. If that didn't come through, my goodness, everything in his life, but still very fun. It didn't feel mechanical. It felt very focused and passionate and mission-driven, really inspirational. I feel we use that word a lot in our Money Tales discussions, but it's true. I, I find so many of these conversations, including the one with Frank today, to be so inspiring. I liked when he talked about even just from a young age, learning, he's all about learning and learning helped him reimagine who he was and become the person he was going to be. Right. How empowering is that? It really is. And so are all the books he reads. So Cammie, tell me what you think of Frank and Noreen's three questions. And I'm asking you because we've had some conversations about you and Roland and how you're talking about money. So what's your take on his three questions? Their two questions is, how do we manage the money? What's our relationship with the money? And how do we make the money? I was really impressed because I am in this journey myself. We all are, or hopefully we are, improvement and commitment to being more intentional in life. And so I walked away thinking, we don't have three questions. We don't have our baseline in meaning. I love that these are the same questions we're coming back to. They're not new questions. We have new questions. It makes for great conversation. But I love the idea that you would have something foundational to always come back to, and it's helped steer the ship. What I appreciated about their three questions was two of them reflect something that we talk about a lot at Asperian, about how there's two different sides of money. There's the emotional side of money, and there's the technical side of money. And the first question, how will we manage it? That's very technical. Frank talked about that. The second question, what is our relationship with money? That's tapping into the emotional. And then the third question I thought was very cool because it's practical. How are we going to make the money? Got to make it. So I like this idea too. And I think I'm going to ponder with my husband, Jerome, what would our three questions be that we would want to keep going back to from time to time? Maybe it'll be these same three. Maybe we'll come up with something different. I think that's great. Like, why don't we challenge our listeners to come up with their three questions? And if you're so willing to do so, share them with us at podcasts at .com. We'd love to be inspired by what your three questions are. That is a brilliant idea, Cammie. And I will look forward to hearing and, and reading questions. And maybe in a future episode, we can share some of those questions with the community and, and really all grow and learn from them together. That's a great idea. Cammie, I'm having so much fun with these money tales. Thanks for doing this with me. Thanks again to Frank for being our guest. And thanks to our listeners for hanging in with us every week, talking and listening about money. Yes. Thank you, Sandy. See you next time. You've been listening to Money Tales, hosted by Sandy Brager and Cammie Doder. To subscribe to the show on your favorite platform or to increase your money mojo via their blog, Fathom, head on over to Asperient.com slash podcasts. Thanks, and we'll see you next time on Money Tales. Money Tales.